The following broadcast is released under a Creative Commons license. I believe in Jesus Christ, the only Son of God. I believe He lived and died, and that He rose again. I believe and trust in Him. Ascended into hell, Christ our living head will one day come again to judge the living and the dead. I believe and trust in Him. I will trust in my Redeemer, sing of His love that lasts forever know His hope and sure salvation I will trust in Him Oh, the world falls around me I rest and know that He has found me Christ, the rock, is my Welcome all to Pastor Yeshua. You've been listening to Creed by Richard Jensen from his album, Order of Service. By way of introduction, Pastor is an acrostic which stands for Preaching All Salvation Through One Redeemer. Our Redeemer, Yeshua, Jesus, is the Hebrew name for the Lord. It means Yahweh, the Lord, is salvation. Translated from Hebrew into the Greek language, the name Yeshua becomes Jesus. The English transliteration for Jesus is Jesus. This program deals with apologetics, questions on and about God, the Bible, and the Christian faith. I take questions and seek by Scripture to give answers and encouragement for everyone, including the tough-minded living in today's skeptical society. And now, let's join Pastor Yeshua. Welcome to Pastor Yeshua. In this episode, we will ask and answer several questions regarding the definitions, parameters, and theological significance regarding the creation ordinance of biblical marriage, which by God's grace and mercy, we will pray to receive discerned insight as to answers which will agree with the whole counsel of God's word. Now, given the fact that this presentation inserts the word quote-unquote biblical into the discussion, many would instantly protest, claiming that to begin an argument regarding marriage with the idea that the Bible should be involved or cited is irrelevant. Consequently, many would attempt to surgically remove any supposed bias created by the Bible, religion, or God. However, I would contend that once we deny or ignore theism, the only alternative left is atheism. Accordingly, 
Atheists, agnostics, and secular humanists alike are primarily obliged to argue and discuss marriage under the constraints of evolution or random chance. Finally, as a supposed neutral ground, some would carefully suggest that we need to redefine, reinterpret, or reinvent the Bible, religion, or God to accommodate the ever-changing preferences and needs of man and society. But somewhere within the winding labyrinth of secular humanistic assumptions, theories, conjecture, and priori biases, stands the beacon of truth. Somewhere in the mists of fog of man's imagination, relative subjective opinion, consensus, and percentage sits the lighthouse of reality, firmly stationed upon the rock of authority. The question is, how do we recognize it? If we are to submit to, or at least acknowledge and include God, then it seems proper to begin our discussion and study with prayer. Father, I pray that by your Spirit and grace, we would receive the gift of patience and discernment to listen and hear what your word says about your creation ordinance of marriage. I pray that by your power, you would restrain and remove these preconceptions, biases, and rebellion which prevent us from greater fellowship with you. Quicken our spirits now and speak to us in the name of your Son, Yeshua, Amen. Now, despite the fact that the title of this episode, Questions About Biblical Marriage, tips our hand and gives away the premise of our study, we need to discuss a number of foundational issues in order to fully answer any questions regarding the subject. Prior to doing so, I would like to make it clear that the objective reason for this episode and its discussion is not to be contentious or to purposely offend anyone for the sake of winning an argument. Rebellion against and submission to God are issues which carry eternal consequences. Accordingly, we should take them seriously because those who are called out by God as his people are held responsible to speak his truth. Next, because the following episode is one which contains a certain level of mature information, I would like to give disclaimer to everyone to be responsible to exercise proper judgment if those who are younger listen to this episode. There is no profanity here, only topics and content which may be suitable to more mature audiences. This being said, sadly, I foresee the possibility that despite how many attempts I or anyone else make to maintain a sincere tone of empathy, love, or any other positive attitudes which could be demonstrated, no matter what approach, no matter what the intent to have honest dialogue, there will be some who, rather than listen, rather than discuss the issues, the response will be to destroy the messenger and the message by any means. But speaking the truth in love can never coexist with a spirit of fear of reprisal. 
only one of the two can flourish. Therefore, as a humble follower of Christ, a Christian, I must ultimately answer the question, as did Peter and the other apostles. Quote, we ought to obey God rather than men, unquote. That being said, when we ask the question, what constitutes a marriage, the criteria and the answers can and do differ from those criteria and answers given when we ask the question, what constitutes a biblical marriage? Whichever way we choose to frame the question, the options we have, I submit, are consistent. So, what are our options? Option number one. Marriage is whatever arrangement that satisfies him slash her. Well, given the explanation proposed within option number one, what must be deduced ultimately is that the word marriage, quote-unquote, has no set definition. Under this umbrella, what we have loosely characterized as marriage is nothing more than a situation which is relative to the dictates of time, convenience, environment, mood, feelings, consensus, percentage, sentiment, opinion, and a myriad of constant changing and evolving whims and emotions of mankind. At its essence, within this paradigm, each person can be a god unto themselves, do whatever they see is right in their own eyes, and defiantly proclaim, marriage is what I say it is, and it is very good. Option two, marriage is a specific arrangement, designed, originated, maintained, and blessed by God according to God's definitions. Well, in contrast to the notion that man is defining, adhering to, and grading what is or what is not truth, meaning, morals, and beauty, we ultimately have to accept the reality that God exists and that it is He who creates, defines, sustains, and grades what is truth, meaning, morals, and beauty. It is God who is the ultimate authority of all things throughout eternity. Man's options are limited to either submitting, honoring, believing, accepting, and giving thanks, or rebelling, disobeying, and blaspheming. We do not have the option of picking and choosing what God is in control of. Obedience is not a matter of convenience. It's not a buffet meal where we take what we like and leave behind what we don't. God is either sovereign over all, in control over all, Lord over all, or we are under the delusion that we are. For the Christian, since God is in control and we are his children by faith in Christ, then by definition we should be seeking his will, his word, his truths and principles by which we live every day. This being the case, we should be committed to diligently search his word in order that we might know what God has revealed about marriage. Finally, we have option three. Marriage is a compromise, i.e. a hybrid arrangement which incorporates elements of options one and two. Well, unfortunately, no matter how carefully written we try to compose a third option along this premise, the basic truth remains is that 
to the same degree that any man or woman would seek to compromise any hybrid arrangement apart from option two, that attempt will first inevitably require that man first nominate himself as being smarter, wiser, and more noble than God himself to the same degree. No matter how well-intentioned such an endeavor might seem, the reality is that pride is at the heart of all such deluded beliefs. In its origin, it was the same pride which caused Lucifer, i.e. Satan, to be lifted up in his own mind, thinking that he could ascend and be like the Most High. Now, like Satan, this or any other compromise of God's perfect will or his word is the same force which ultimately drives us and separates us from God's presence and peace. Thus, in the end, option one and three, both, though differently written, are ideas which each depart from the benchmark of the ultimate authority found only in God and his word as articulated by option two. So, given the above synopsis, the contention that God created and instituted the ordinance of marriage to be a solemn and respected estate held between a man and a woman probably seems blatantly obvious to some. However, despite this, many in growing numbers across the globe are in adversity to the idea as being obsolete or even isolationist. In order to know why, the following episodes will ask 16 questions, each of which we will answer and give discussion. That being said, let's begin. Question 1. Who is our source of ultimate authority with which we judge the merits of discussion on marriage? Do we trust the wisdom of man? Or do we trust God in his word? Well, if we ask the atheist, the secular humanist, or those of this world, they will likely answer and tell us that man is the ultimate source of truth and authority. According to the atheist and secular men, man is advancing beyond the primitive, puritanical, narrow-minded, judgmental, religious, mythical, fundamental, rigid, hostile sentiments of the archaic past. Instead, they would say that mankind has now evolved and continues to evolve to higher, loftier, more inclusive, more tolerant, loving, kind, mature, sensitive sentiments and attitudes. The atheist and the secular humanist would contend that we cannot trust God, the Bible, or religion in general because they are all inventions of men who have misguided ulterior motives driven by greed, power, and avarice to make up, change, corrupt, or invent what we know today to be the Bible. Yet, simultaneously, these same forces for evil, which are said to exist and to create and affect religion, somehow can never exist to adversely affect the philosophies, pursuits, and beliefs of the atheist and secular humanist. By some, dare I say miracle, 
the atheist and the secular humanist are able to transcend the effects and limits of avarice, greed, and sin. According to the atheist and secular humanist, it is only the lower-level caste of those deluded enough to trust God and believe in His Word who are entangled by such stumbling stones. Yet, God's Word gives the propositional revelation that is the atheist, the secular humanist, and those in rebellion who are hopelessly lost, deluded, and without discernment. Apart from God and His indwelling Holy Spirit, man is incapable of understanding truth or reality. Consequently, it comes as no surprise that the unregenerate man would be completely deceived when it comes to a biblically sound definition and understanding of marriage. 1 Corinthians chapter 2 verse for, for, 1 Corinthians chapter 2 verse 14 says it this way, quote, but the natural man receiveth not the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness unto him. Neither can he know them, because they are spiritually discerned. Unquote. Romans chapter 3, verses 10 through 18 say this quote, As it is written, there is none righteous, no, not one. There is none that understandeth. There is none that seeketh after God. They are all gone out of the way. They are together become unprofitable. There is none that doeth good. No, not one. Their throat is an open sepulcher with their tongues. They have used deceit. The poison of asps is under their lips, whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Destruction and misery are in their ways, and the way of peace have they not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Unquote. Thus, when we ask the question, what is the definition of biblical marriage, or even what is the definition of marriage, period, in either case, the end result is entirely dependent on the starting point. Do we start with man or God? If we start with man, then which man do we start with? Whose opinion or from what source do we obtain the authority to say what is truth? Does a consensus or percentage rule? Clearly, whichever person we choose, Whatever opinion we use, whatever percentage or consensus reigns, all of these sources are subject to change moment to moment, day to day, generation to generation. If there is the possibility of change yesterday, today, or tomorrow, it stands to reason that instead of truth and reality, what we have instead is relativity subjectivity, or a cultural mood. Consequently, we have an open door to uncertainty and error. However, if we honestly start with God and His Word, we know that God does not change, nor does He commit error. Question 2. 
Does life consist of some substantive reality containing ultimate truth and authority? Or is life comprised of relative ideas, subjective opinions, consensus, and percentage of the populace? Well, today, there are those who often defend their position in protest by saying, I'm not alone. There are many others like me who feel as I do and agree with me. But the question is, does percentage and consensus, even if it's 100%, affect reality or ultimate authority? Or does reality and ultimate authority remain and continue to be reality and ultimate authority in spite of the greatest consensus, percentage, and opinion to the opposite? The obvious answer is that if there is a source of ultimate authority and reality, then that authority and reality does not stop, change, or diminish, no matter how much consensus, percentage, or opinion may exert itself. As a result, in order to maintain the validity of option number one, i.e., marriage is whatever arrangement that satisfies him her secular man must also say that there is no ultimate authority, no ultimate reality, and no ultimate lawgiver, i.e. God, in order to give mankind the illusion that we have the arbitrary ability to define marriage in a way that suits any man or woman at any given time. Nevertheless, while those of the world will never see or understand it, the truth is that God and his word are forever the ultimate authority and wisdom by which we know and trust what is good and right. It is how we discern between what is correct and what is error. It is how we judge all meaning, morals, beauty, and justice. By contrast, man does what is right in his own eyes as being convenient for the moment, according to the percentage, consensus, culture, and popular opinion. What was bad yesterday is good today. What is good today may be abhorrent tomorrow. What is virtue for some is immorality to others. Man's ability to lobby political sentiments and or a greater community consensus to one point of view or another does not affect the underlying intrinsic truth of reality and ultimate authority. Question 3. From what source do we obtain our authority to discern what is truth and reality? Is it God or man? Well, most of the world, and certainly the atheist and secular humanists, will protest, saying, We have laws. We have courts who decide difficult and controversial issues and establish what is legal and what is illegal. These decisions define authority and reality for our society. However, there are several questions which deserve careful attention. First of all, is there any court which is infallible? Secondly, do courts always make the correct decisions? 
Thirdly, are those who judge within our courts comprised of men or of God? Fourthly, do courts judge according to secular man or according to God, ultimate authority, and reality? Well, some will say that the courts are the only reality and truth that are important. Okay, if so, what do we say about those times where courts said it was illegal to do things that at other times were by every definition unlawful or immoral? For example, was it not lawful at one time to buy, sell, and own slaves? Yes. Was it not unlawful at one time for women to vote? Yes. Were there not times when governments, kings, and or leaders made laws by which all accounts were onerous, unfair, unjust, illegal, or even evil by other standards? Answer? Yes. Well, the lesson is that the judgment of our rulers, government, and courts are limited to the same dictates of man and society. Whether we are talking about an individual human, a group of humans, society, the government, or any court, the common denominator is that all people are beset with the effects of sin. As a result, no matter where we go on earth for judgment, if we go without and apart from God and His Word, we depart from and arrive at a destination of potential error. At this point, the atheist and the secular humanist would vainly hope and believe that there is no God and consequently there is no ultimate authority. If there is authority is vested in the halls of various governments, legislative bodies, courts, and legal documents. These have the final authority according to the atheist and secular humanist. However, the self-refuting fact which disproves and blows up this notion is that if the secular humanist and atheist do not see their desired truth and reality codified by the court of man, well, then they simply lobby, protest, whine, complain, and do whatever it takes to change the law to their desired outcome. This, in fact, points out an important axiom that any truth or reality that man can at once give and then later take away is no truth at all, but rather a mere illusion which is here today and gone tomorrow. This is why, in part, the Founding Fathers of America and many since understood that in order for our laws to hold immutable truth, they had to be based upon the authority of God who ordained and gave the basic tenets to man. It is God who created and who cohesively sustains the fabric of justice, freedom, mercy, faith, grace, honor, and beauty. Any attempt to surgically remove God from the fabric of an ordered society and somehow maintain the same attributes sustained by God starts the process of death and decay 
for those attributes. The fact is that if God is removed and percentage and consensus rule the day, then there is no limit to what man can decide what is good or bad. To one degree or another, we can all sit around and assure ourselves that that, whatever that is, will never happen. No one believes that. No one is ever going to allow or agree to that. That is against the law. So that is impossible. But in reality, without ultimate authority, the only prohibition to that, whatever that is, is time, percentage, and consensus of opinion. All it takes is 51% to change that. The proof of this fact is found repeatedly in history. Time and again we see that once upon a time, for whatever reasons, the majority held the opinion that that was good or bad. As a result, it was either legal or illegal. Okay, fast forward however far and now time, percentage, and consensus turns the table. That which was legal is now illegal. That which was illegal is now legal. Are we now so gullible and arrogant that we believe that this process can only happen once and only in the past? Or can it happen at any given time depending on the culture, the environment, the mood, the whim, the feelings, the sentiment, and so on? But contrary to the way of the world, God is the final source of authority, truth, and reality. Psalms chapter 115 verse 3 says this, quote, But our God is in the heavens. He does whatever he pleases, unquote. Further, Jesus said in John chapter 14 verse 6, quote, Jesus saith unto him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. Unquote. During Jesus' trial before Pilate, we read the following quote, Pilate therefore said unto him, Art thou a king then? Jesus answering, Thou sayest I am a king. To this end was I born, and for this cause came I into the world, that I should bear witness unto the truth. Everyone that is of the truth heareth my voice. Unquote. From these and other verses, we learn two truths regarding reality. One, Jesus believed there was a truth and reality. Two, Jesus proclaimed that he was and is that truth and a reality. Question four. Doesn't the fact that there are many, quote, Christian, unquote, churches and or denominations who have embraced or even adopted more tolerant, more loving, more favorable, and more liberal views about marriage, which are in line with current world opinions, prove that the world's views and behaviors are acceptable? 
Answer, no. Unfortunately, any group of people anywhere in the world can get together and slap a sign on a building calling themselves a quote-unquote church. But using a word, a title, or even exhibiting a series of the most outwardly convincing behaviors does not necessarily a church make. Marriage is one of many things facilitated, celebrated, and honored by God's church. But marriage is not a sacrament created, instituted, designed by the church. Marriage is a creation ordinance of God, which He personally instituted, designed, and sacrifices for mankind. If any group calling themselves a quote-unquote church has the ability to define what marriage is outside God's word, then marriage can be anything, everything, and nothing at any given time. In the end, the sanctity of marriage would be meaningless. So when we talk about the church, whether it be labeled Christian or other, being the touchstone of marriage or anything else, we must first remember that the term Christian and church are both terms which are in dire need of definition and explanation before we cross the threshold to allowing those who would cavalierly apply these terms to then define and legitimize marriage. The fact is that because of the straight-line effects of sin and rebellion on the human heart and mind, we live in a fallen world where the term quote-unquote Christian is a loose term for which anyone may attempt to apply it without examination or license. This is a problem for which the questions and answers require a discussion unto itself. For more information on how the application and misapplication of the term Christian is to be biblically defined and used, I would direct the listener to the three-part episode entitled, Questions About Christianity. Be that as it may, the basic problem is that, as with all mankind, we deal with the effects of sin and rebellion. With the blatant atheist, secular humanist, and the worldly, the effects of sin are much easier to see from the perspective of those who have been called to surrender their lives to Jesus Christ by grace through faith in His imputed righteousness. However, for those who are drawn to surrender our lives or, and who are justified and are continuing on the road of sanctification by the same grace and faith, the process of identifying sin and rebellion within the ranks of the church, i.e. the out-called ones, can be more problematic. For one thing, in contrast to the world's notions, it is the church, Christ's out-called ones, as authorized by God and defined by the totality of Scripture in context, who are evaluating, judging, and assessing the world, and not the world who is evaluating, judging, and assessing the church. Despite this, many who would call themselves Christ's church have bought into the idea that the church should be run on the basis of a worldly business model. In this model, success is evaluated all too often in terms of how large the church is, how popular, how many people sit in its pews, how large is the offering, 
How big is the building? How many programs do they have and how relevant is the message to the community? How popular is its message to the general public? Tragically, instead of the church being salt and light to a dying world, instead of the church being a force to save and convert those whom God would call to himself out from the world, the church finds itself being converted into the image of a dying world bent on rebelling against God. Worst of all, many who would call themselves Christian, having lost their salt and light, would attempt to justify themselves and maintain their status as God's church at the cost of redefining, reinterpreting, ignoring, or reinventing God's word. They then go on to utilize their watered-down, twisted version of God and His Word, along with the world's pejorative terms and arguments, as weapons against those within God's church who would have the audacity to recognize and conform themselves to the benchmark of God as the ultimate author and authority of unchanging truth, reality, meaning, morals, and beauty. The above predicament and the phenomena of the corruption of the church called to honor Christ and his word multiplies like a malignant cancer with time. As the effects of sin and rebellion increase in the world, the pressure, persecution, and adversity from the world increases against the church. Pressure, persecution, and adversity inevitably will produce one of two things in the believer and the church at large. Either they produce a life of greater tenacity, holiness, endurance, hope, perseverance, patience, faith, and love of God and his word, or they produce compromise, impatience, unfaithfulness, rebellion, and sin against God. The situation becomes a vicious cycle for the worldly church because in order to become and remain relevant, hip, and acceptable to the world, the worldly church must constantly reinvent, watering itself and God's word down to meet the dictates of the world, which is ever increasingly becoming more depraved each day. In the end, it comes as no surprise that there are those people and groups who call themselves quote-unquote Christian, yet to one degree or another have departed from the faith which was delivered once and all to the saints. All too often these groups point to having a large ornate building, great financial success, political clout, status, and most importantly because they have agreed with the sentiments of the community around them, they point to having approval, attendance, and support of the world. Having established this fallen symbiotic relationship, the worldly church and its practitioners use their ostensible worldly success to then accuse, divide, and discourage those who have remained faithfully consistent to being the true church, i.e. the out-called ones. In Galatians chapter 1, verse 10, 
Paul concludes the position of the Christian of the true church this way, quote, For do I now persuade men or God, or do I seek to please men? For if I yet please men, I should not be the servant of Christ, unquote. This concludes this episode. Please join me for part two. If you have any questions about God, the Bible, or the Christian faith, I encourage you to send me an email at pastor underscore Yeshua at yahoo.com. That's P-A-S-T-O-R underscore Y-E-S-H-U-A at yahoo.com. Thank you for listening. Trust in Him. I will trust in Him.